Hello, welcome to another episode of Theosity Fridays. I'm Blake Wimberly, and this is my co-host. Ben Rochester, pastor of Pilgrim Presbyterian Church. And together, uh, oh yeah, we made mention about that, is um, Theosity Fridays. And so uh, what, what we talked about last time was the subject of um, general revelation versus special revelation. And what we talked about was, is it enough to know that God exists. And what we have noticed was, is that no, we need that special revelation that comes from God through salvation in Christ. Because uh, without that special revelation of knowing who God truly is, we cannot be saved because um, without Christ, um, we are, we would still be under the first uh, Adam who basically in, in uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So that's why we have to be, we have to um, be counted as righteousness uh, through Christ, which of course is the doctrine of justification, but we'll talk about that in another segment. So um, anyways, of course, as usual, hi, God bless. Uh, thank you, Brandon, for also joining us as well, who was the who is the CEO of NowMentor.com, who we, one of the people that we're under. So um, we are very uh, thankful about that. If anybody's viewing right now, too, you can uh, you can comment questions. You can give us questions as we go along, and we'll try and answer them later in the, in the video here. That's right, because how this works is that we do 30 minutes of discussion and, t and teaching, well, discussion with a teaching behind it, and then... Um, then 30 minutes after that, or um, 30 minutes of discussion, and then 30 minutes of a Q&A, and then we do what we can by um, God's uh, divine knowledge, through his divine knowledge, through his word, that um, we help, we uh, basically answer the questions that are um, given to us. So, um, anyways, uh, as usual, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and get into an introduction, because um, today we're going to talk about the inspiration of scripture and this is a very important topic because here is why the word for inspiration comes to the original greek word theonousos how this word is usually used in the scriptures as describing god's word as god breathed inspired by god and due to the inspiration of god so the word of god isn't inspiration because it inspires us as like some movie or sports cliche or any of that but God's holy word is inspired because it is inspired in it by of it of itself by the author himself who is God himself. Second Timothy three sixteen to seventeen testifies that this is a fact. Um, all Scripture is inspired, theonustos, God breathed and unprofitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 to 21, illustrates for us that God used fallible men infallibly to write down through God's divine inspiration. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Therefore, accordingly to all this, the the inspiration of Scripture is not a man-made doctrine. It is a doctrine that is truly of God and God alone. 
Now let us talk about the inspiration of Scripture. So what did you get for the inspiration of Scripture when you studied for the subject? Well, I mean, the word inspiration is, first off, an important one to think about because when we talk about the word inspiration, sometimes it can be confusing. People might think, oh, you mean that they were inspired people, poetic inspiration, that they had this sort of moment where... The Mojust came to them to write down what needed to be written. And maybe that within that, there are some ethics that we need to learn. There might be some religious truths. But the word theopneustos uh, in the Greek refers to actually like God being the wind, God giving the air to the person who's going to speak. So the, it comes, it's a compound word. Uh, we say inspiration, which like means like to breathe into something right? To spirate, that means yeah. to breathe, and then in, inspiration. Whereas many people who are linguists have pointed out that maybe in English a better word would be expiration, like to expire air out of your lungs. And the reason why is because the word itself, theopneustos, comes from like the word uh, pneuma, like pneumatic, yeah, and theos, so the word God, theos, and the word uh, pneuma. And so Neustos is actually spelled, well, in English, P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S, uh, or in the Greek they have different letters. But um, we know this word from like pneumatic drills. So like if you have a pneumatic drill, it runs off of air and things like that. If any of the listeners are interested in an uh, example of that. But it has to do with God giving the man who wrote the scripture the, uh, the breath to speak. Like it's, it's something within him that moved him, and yet he wrote and spoke with his own personality and skill. So God was, in other words, superintending and imparting to us his very word through an individual's personality, skill of language, and that sort of thing. So it is the very word of God, uh, but it comes through an individual's actual personality. So they call that the organic view of inspiration. Uh, it's not robotic and things like that, but I got a lot to say about that. Um, but did you have anything from Scripture you wanted to point out on that? Well, yeah. Well, when you when you mentioned about that the the when the you know Theonostos is made mention like um, from the Greek word pneuma, right? As you made mention about spirit right. and when the P is breath. silent, so it's always confusing. Yeah. So you know, if you hear it, it doesn't sound right. So we spell it uh, well in English: T H E O P N. E-U-S-T-O-S, Theopneustos, but you, you kind of give this a little bit of a, it's not quite a puh, but nu. It's there, there's a little bit there with the, with the letter P that, that helps you remember <laughs> when you say it in English, at least for me. So. And, and, and really quickly, even though this is, um, trying not to take um, off too much of topic, but that's what one of the things that kind of frustrates me about the English language as well is the always those silent letters, like... What? There was a G in there? There was a P in there? Right. So sometimes those things don't make too much often sense yeah. at times. But It doesn't, it doesn't. Because like English is like the most American of languages too, even though obviously it comes from England. Yeah. But the fact that it takes from all these different cultures and it uses all of the different mm -hmm. words and spellings and methodologies from Scandinavia and Germany and Latin and, uh, and uh, you know, from 
the ancient Gauls and everything like that. You got this immense eclecticism of the way we speak that you could have something from France or wherever, you know, it's a yeah. language. And uh, we like it, and that's why we use it. Because so, <laughs> it works. Yeah. It does. So. Kind of sounds pragmatic in nature. Right. I, <laughs> I, I have my American flag shoes on right now. So I should, let's see. I can show them if I get on my camera. So I guess you're yeah. going to go protest then? No, I'm not going to protest. <laughs> okay. Uh, we, we, like to, we like to have a little fun sometimes. We like to study theology and enjoy life. Um, so going back onto it really quickly, you know, you make and mention also about Numos and all that. Right. Um, it always reminds me of when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter three, because he describes how somebody is reborn by the spirit of God, mm -hmm. which of course we get the doctrine of regeneration because of John chapter three, verse three, no one can, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. But then you get further into the passage after, you know, in, after Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Of course, he's not He's not asking this question because he's, you know, dumb or just a simpleton. This is a Pharisee. He's very educated in the Old Testament scriptures. So he's actually asking because that, that's because um, many of the rabbis would ask each other questions and be educated. But as as Jesus is describing how someone is born in the spirit, he uses that exact terminology you use, starting in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but... Do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And I think that's I think that's a really perfect example how the word pneumos is so often used. Yeah, it means wind. It means like a blowing wind. And so like we have wind in our lungs that makes the air come out. And like, yeah, so it fits with that theme, like with inspiration. So that that's my, I guess, bone to pick with the English word. And a lot of theologians have pointed this out that it's a good word so long as it's not taken out of context, which a lot of people will read theology or they'll learn a little bit of terminology and they'll think they know what it means by imposing their preconceptions that they've always had back upon a theological term. Yeah. But we have to read them in context of how they've been used and how, what they've meant over the course of centuries. Uh, and especially, we've got to bring them back to Scripture and see if they're adequate terms to use. So preferably, I like to use the word theopneustos, uh, because uh, it's clarity for theological writing, but I'll say inspiration too for, you know, from the pulpit and things like that, or uh, superintending, the Holy Spirit superintending the uh, writers. Uh, a good example of this is actually a, a psalm I was studying this week, Psalm 119. So it's the long one. <laughs> But it's right, in the, right toward the end of it, uh, verse 137. It's probably right in the middle of your Bible, probably. If you open up right in the middle, it's probably right about there. It says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. So it's speaking about the attribute of God's righteousness. Uh, and then it speaks about his judgments being righteous. And so his judgments are like certain laws in the Bible 
that are speaking about like what should be done in different situations. We call them case laws sometimes in the writings of Moses. So he's speaking about how God's attribute of righteousness is the reason why his judgments are righteous. And then it says in 138, you have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. So all these promises, these testimonies that God's made to us, he has done in righteousness and faithfulness. So again, it's like linked to the character of God. So God being the source of what was said, it's linked to his character. Uh, verse 139, my zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure. Uh, so he's talking about the purity of the word. Uh, but why would it be pure is presumably if you follow the same argument he made above, it would be because of God's purity. Uh, 141 says, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. I think that's so helpful because, I mean, obviously when it's talking about the law, it's not just talking about like uh, law versus gospel. It's talking about the books of Moses. It's talking about the Bible. It's talking about the scriptures. The scriptures are truth. They're not just true in the sense that they're factually containing real things that happen. They are the source of truth. They're the final arbiter of truth because they are connected to the nature of God. So he concludes in 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. So testimonies meaning like he testifies to these promises to us. Uh, he, he makes witness to who he is and what he has done in Scripture and that that's our path of life. So it's like, it comes to us with purity and righteousness. It's the path of like, if we want to be pleasing to God, the objective standard of truth, but also the way of life and assurance that these things are the only final statement of truth. Uh, so I, I thought it was really helpful, providentially getting ready for this subject today, that this passage came up, because that's really the nature of, when we're talking about what Theopneustos means, to have it dramatized is sometimes helpful. But what it means is that when the authors are speaking in Scripture, they're being carried along by the Holy Spirit to speak God's Word. And because it is connected to the nature and character of God, that's what makes it true. That's what makes it authoritative. Uh, that's what makes it powerful and have authority to come home to our hearts. And that's what makes it righteous and all these other things. Pure, all those attributes of God are also true of His Word. Um, and as he speaks, it's a living word and it reveals him as such. So I think that's a really well, helpful passage for me to kind of think through, like, what was the spirituality of Israel? How did they understand the Bible? How did people in the Old Testament think about the Bible? Say so they thought it was truth because it came from the source of God's nature. And it, and it just goes on to show that we can trust our Bibles because God is the author of the Bible and we made mention before that, yes, he used men infallibly who were very fallible. Just look at Noah. He got drunk. Look at look at Moses. He also had problems of his own and problems of his own and, and many others. But despite of all that, is that God used these weak people. But that's the beauty of the Bible right. is it's to point to the one who is the actual author, the one who is the 
actual one that's behind the story. Matter of fact, I wanted to point out in in John chapter 20, matter of fact, about this, that, you know, after, you know, when Thomas um, sees Jesus and he says, you know, I won't, uh, I won't believe unless, you know, I, I, um, I see his side and all that. Well, what's so interesting is that the author of John parallels that biblical account within verse 30 because he uses the words therefore and therefore as i would like to call it is the theological ropes that connect to the previous passages so he connects that with this and this is what he says and i really believe this is a great point for the doctrine of inspiration because it really points to again what the main reason of of scripture is and why um, and what it is communicating to us because it goes on to say Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book. But, and here is the main point about all this, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And then do you want to add on anything to that? Well, it does prove what we talked about last week in terms of uh, that there's many things that, you know, uh, were revealed, right? That, that we don't have, in Scripture, we don't have all of God's revelation. Uh, we have what is written is sufficient for us. So, like, there are many prophets that we know of in Scripture uh, who spoke and did many things and ministered to God's people. Uh, but especially Jesus, like, every moment of his life was revelation. And so it is important that we have, you know, what is for our salvation and for our doctrines and for our lives. God has given us what's sufficient. So it definitely circles back to our discussion on the need for special revelation, too. Yeah, and I think they perfectly parallel with, um, with uh, inspiration. Special revelation and inspiration, they kind of go together oh, yeah, very sure. well. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta, w once you talk about special revelation... You start asking questions about, well, if God has spoken, then what does that mean? Exactly. <laughs> Either it means he's dictated through people or he has used people's personalities or that um, there's some truth within that might have the divine spark and all those different things. But however we slice it up, we know that God has done something. Uh, the view that obviously the Bible teaches, actually, is that God used the personalities of the individuals and every dot of their punctuation and every word and letter that they said was truly the very word of God, superintended by God. Like Jesus actually says that in the New Testament, that not one yod or tittle will pass in the law unless until all is fulfilled. Uh, it would be easier for the heavens and the earth to be destroyed than it would be for in the cards for God to uh, allow the word of God to fail. Or to not be true because it was connected to his own nature. So uh, uh, yod is like a it looks like a little apostrophe in Hebrew. Oh yeah, yod. I and then a tittle is like a dot. Um, it's called dagesh in the Hebrew. It's like just a dot. It goes in the middle of a letter, and it, it says that this letter is supposed to be duplicated. But to save space, they would just put a little dot in the middle of it. So like, not a little you know. Uh, horn of a thing or a little dot is ever going to fall from the word of god it's all inspired in other words it's the very word of god it's not a it's not a hyperbole it's a statement that god has inspired this word it's connected to the nature of god 
And so it's God's word. So once you talk about revelation, you have to start thinking about the implications of that revelation. And uh, what we see in scripture is that not only do you have a few places where, like we've talked about some of the passages that are very didactic, they teach, and they, they formulate a doctrine, they're very logical. There's also huge sections of scripture that dramatize the word of God coming to people mm. and how it is inspired. Like, uh, for example, uh, with the prophets, when they receive the word of God, a lot of times they see these visions and they're having to write them down. Right. And they relate to us later their notes compiled and, you know, articulated, but God has superintended not just the vision that they saw, but also then the writing that they do afterward to record everything to us in an orderly fashion. Or like, for example, uh, when the prophets are actually, well, you know, bringing the word of God to people, a lot of times they have these dialogues with God, and then you see them and go speaking to, say, Samuel to Saul or Samuel to David and those kinds of things. So it's a great example of how you have the drama of inspiration happening, that God has spoken, and he continues to speak through the prophets. So there is like a face-to-face -face kind of communication. Mm. But then there is also this superintendence upon the prophet while he's prophesying as well. And you know what? One of the, one of the most perfect examples of that is back in 722 BC, during the time of the Assyrian captivity, when Isaiah sees the holiness of God Right. from Isaiah 6. Right. And we see, you know, um, you know, from verse 3, and one called out to one another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so then after that, he sees the holiness of God. He sees the angels and all of that and the, tr and the robe filling the temple and all of that. Then you see afterwards everything that you exactly said, he has that communication between him and God because right. then... We get to verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Right. Or who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. So kind of like with that, that the, he received that, um, if we could say, special revelation or a, um, a revelation from God. And commanding him to go speak to him. And and so now what what is that? Uh if we could bring it to modern times. So of course we don't believe that, you know, there's more prophets and all that apostles because you know we have the completed written word of God. But in a similar fashion, when we talk about the word prophesy, it's to it's to preach. It's not to uh um it's not to get some sort of vision and then all of a sudden you say you're gonna have a a baby boy and start prophesying to people like in the, in the context or sense, like they did in the old, you know, old Testament, but it's more of the sense of prophesy as in preach the word. Right. So you study the word. And, um, so then you understand it through, uh, the, the, uh, basically the empowering of the Holy spirit. So that way you could preach the people. Thus says the Lord instead of, you know, um, thus says, this is what my feelings say. Right. Well, yeah, in, in the Old Testament, those prophets were inspired, not just when they, you know, had the vision, like you said, but they were inspired and superintended while they continued to speak. Yeah, and and a lot of times too, uh, we forget that the exposition of the Word of God puts us face to face with God's, you know, living application. It's the living Word. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing between the joint and marrow and the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Yeah. So we have that. Definitely, what you're saying is definitely true with that. That 
there's a prophetic element to our teaching too. Um, however, it's it's insofar as it is faithful to the Word of God, because the Word of God is the standard. And so, like as a preacher, when I go up in the pulpit and I divide the Word and I explain it and then I make application, those applications are the very Word of God to people, the living Word, God speaking to them. Insofar as I am rightly interpreting the Word of God according to its original intent. And then I am making legitimate applications to people's lives. Uh, and it, if it is accurate, then it is. And, you know, I think the word of God is fairly clear on most things, and some things are not. And we've got some good questions coming up, too. Ah, oh, I yeah, I like these. They, I Speaking know. about things that aren't clear, we've got some good stuff coming up. Oh, yeah, but that'll, that'll come up in the right. Q&A. Right. But I think everything you said, first of all, of course, 2 Timothy 2, 15, be unashamed as a workman unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. And then, speaking about all that right. you said, I, I found a quote from Matthew Henry regarding on this, on the topic of the inspiration of Scripture. He writes um, regarding to 2 Timothy 3, 16, which we talked about with Theonosos and all that. He writes, those who would learn the things of God and be assured of them must know the holy scriptures for they are the divine revelation. I think that and I think that fits perfectly um for the preacher and all that because the thing of today is is that they think that the worship leader is the guy with the guitar. But in actuality, the worship leader is the one preaching the word and giving the message every single Sunday and Bible study and all that. The the preacher is actually the one who abides by the word of God. Right. So how about uh, some problems that people run into? Like, obviously we have the subject of scripture alone as the highest authority. Right. And then uh, I think you had a, had some uh, examples of that. I know that during the late Middle Ages, there was obviously a debate with the early Reformation era and the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, for example... Martin Luther uh, was teaching the doctrine of justification by the imputed righteousness of Christ received by faith alone against the doctrine of penance where uh, one could remove their sins or be infused with divine grace through acts of giving alms or sacraments or doing good works or taking vows like as a priest or as a monk. And that those things would give you grace. And so grace is like a substance that you would receive. Whereas in the New Testament, it obviously says that our problem is a legal problem with God. It's not a problem necessarily just with our being. It's a problem fundamentally with the fact that we are sinners, not justified before God. And that what we need is divine justice to be satisfied. And so, you know, Luther points out that when Paul is talking about the way of justification, it's not through works or sacraments and these different things. It is through the application of Christ's righteousness received by faith alone. And it says that very clearly in multiple places in the New Testament. So then, because Luther's pretty clear on that, and it's very help helpful for a lot of people in convincing a lot of people, when the, the debates start heating up with other monks and other professors and other doctors in the church, as the Reformation is getting going, uh, or the early stages of the Reformation, maybe even before the Reformation was fully started, the, really the, the other question starts to come up of where is the authority? Because Luther is saying, 
that the scriptures say this, mm-hmm. and then the Roman Catholic Church as a whole is saying that, yes, but the church says this about the scriptures. Mm-hmm. So there is a sacred tradition. There is an interpretation of scripture that is the official interpretation. The problem is even a face-level reading, a, a prima facie reading of the thing, you're going to find out that it teaches justification by faith alone, by imputed righteousness. So that led to the larger debate that came up about the Bible. Is the Bible the authority, the final authority? Because Rome has always said that uh, the church is the entity that gives the scriptures its authority. So the scripture has no authority that the church does not already. Because they believe, because men in the church, the prophets and the, the priests and those who, the apostles were part of the church, they argue that because the word comes from the church, that therefore the church has authority above the word. Whereas Luther was arguing that no, the word creates the church and holy men sent from God were carried along by the Holy Spirit to speak for God. And because of that, the church is created, not just institutionally, but actually powerfully by the Holy Spirit uh, through the Word of God. So that became the debate over what's called sola scriptura. Yeah. So sola meaning alone. Alone. And scriptura being the Latin word for scripture. It just means writing. So the, the sacred writings alone are not the only thing we read, but they are alone the final authority upon which all matters of doctrine and ethics should be based. That everything that we think must be guided by this, like Matthew Henry says, the revelation of God, the divine revelation from the other side. You know, that that is a stronger authority than the church. And so that became the debate is, does the church create the word or does the word create the church? And so the Council of Trent and, of course, the Vatican councils as well have reaffirmed that. The Roman Catholic doctrine is clearly that the uh, church creates the word, whereas the Protestant churches have always argued that the word creates the church. So not only does it dictate our final standard of authority, but also the actual gospel preached and the sacraments, which are living words, which are, you know, visible words, actually create the covenant community. And you can bear that out in scripture too, which I'd be happy to show. But basically an example would just be Abraham who receives the gospel, he receives the promises, and then only afterward receives the sacrament of circumcision and the other sacrificial systems come after the promises. So the promises of the gospel come first and then the sacraments come. But along with that, you actually then have visible people being constituted through the sacraments and all those different kinds of things. But the word and sacrament created the church not the other way around. There was no church before the word. There was word before the church. Rome will say, this is kind of funny. Uh, I heard somebody say this. I, I'll give him credit in a minute. But um, when you set something up by saying this is kind of funny, it's not funny anymore. But this is. Uh, it goes like this. Rome will say, essentially to Luther, where or to us, where was your church before Luther? And... I know there's a theologian, a pastor named Doug Wilson, who says, where was your face before you washed it? <laughs> it's like, that, that's what it is. is yeah. When you reform back to scripture, you're cleaning up all these things that shouldn't have been there. 
And this is the purity. You go back Amen. to the authority of Scripture alone as wow. the highest and final authority. Um, but that's one debate that's going on in the last 500 years, I guess. And I would say, I was, I was going to use a, um, an example from Islam, but I think the more th um, thought about it, just from that example of Martin Luther and, and defending Sola Scriptura, and then also, I remember seeing that one uh, movie of Luther back in the back in the fifties, I believe it was, or the forties. And then you know he's studying from uh, the Book of Romans, Romans chapter one, and then he circles and puts sola fide, faith alone. But the more that I've thought about that and how this is being brought um, into today's modern churches, is that. It's not only the fact that they believe in sola ecclesiasta. I also believe they they sneak in their own traditions. And it's now here's the thing is it's okay to have a tradition as long as it doesn't override scripture. What tends to happen though is that people override uh, basically put their traditions over the scriptures. Right. Um, like like one time I was preaching at a church and then after I got off. Um, preaching off their pulpit, I was dealing with one of the elders and he was telling me um, a, a real preacher is someone who is flexible. And I kept on telling him, but 2 Timothy 2.15, that I am to rightly divide the word of truth and all that. Well, I get that you have a conviction, but again, you need to, you need to be flexible. You need to tell it like a story. And see, that's the problem is that people don't understand that the the um the object or the responsibility of the preacher is to preach the word rightly we don't make stories about the bible we allow the bible itself to be the center authority not um not our life stories not um not the way we feel not our opinions but it's based upon god's holy right it's based upon who god truly is and when people don't know who God um, truly is through his word, then they're going to base everything else. And then one more example, then we'll get to Q&A, is that then, because um, these are modern examples, he uses the his historical example, which is great. It, it always brings from the, the, uh, the, the I guess, introduction um, into the outro. And so I remember one time I was even dealing with someone and I, I was, of course, was regeneration precedes faith, but she was more of faith perceives regeneration. And I kept saying, but according to what standard? And she would go, well, this is what I've experienced. According to what standard? This is what I've experienced. So it's not only, the, it's not only what people, and I'm not saying that experience is bad, but if you make that the final authority, then really your final authority is not in scripture, but and what you've experienced and what you've been through in the past. And it's and again, it's not a bad thing um, what to use your experiences. But again, it goes back to if you use your experiences as the final authority, then the glory is going to go to you and it's not going to go to God. But then how are you going to deal with Psalm chapter 3 verse 8 where it says salvation belongs to the Lord, blessing be upon your people. And then how do you deal with John 6.44 where... Um, it says that no one can come to me unless the Father draws them to Christ and they'll raise them up on the last day. So how do you deal with those texts if it's all about your experience, if it's all about your feelings, and if it's all about these things 
rather than God's holy word. Yeah, so there's there's different views of inspiration. I was just looking that up because I, I, I wanted to make sure I got the term right. I think that's called the dynamic view of inspiration, oh, okay. uh, which is where basically you have your experience of the religion that tells you what it is, what is the right interpretation. So, for example, people who uh, will have a religious experience at a church will say, because I had this experience, this must be how scripture is interpreted on the subject. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's actually something that's been around since about the 17th century and really fits well with a, a lot of movements that are going on today. Uh, in fact, uh, it's funny because as you say that, there is a clear answer to that, which is that uh, basically, again, it really doesn't fit with scripture actually coming through the authors in a specific situation. So like, John was writing to people. He knew he had an audience that had a problem that needed correction. He wrote to that in a language, in a context, through his own knowledge and skill, yet it was the Holy Spirit speaking through him. So like the words don't just have arbitrary meaning that depends upon how I would experience it in my life. A lot of people will say something along the lines of, you know, I believe that the relationship with God is what really matters, not just what we think, not just how we think about things. And a lot of times what you find is that because of that, it's their own personal experience guiding the way they interpret Scripture. It's not the problem of sola scriptura versus sola ecclesia, but rather it's the problem of sola scriptura versus solo scriptura. And meaning like me alone, I alone am the final standard mm -hmm. of truth and me and my interpretation of scripture based around my, uh, my intellect uh, and my experience of religion. It's probably the biggest view held in the Western part of the world today would be solo scriptura because most people mm -hmm. who are taught to have a very independent, rugged individualistic way of thinking, like your thoughts are your own thoughts. You, you do your own thing. You postmodern, yeah, self self-made. Well, just just being modern in general. Yeah, um, not even postmodern, but being Western and democratized, like the individual, the rugged individual, things that we cherish, or I cherish, of, of you know what I think matters, what you think matters, and we can debate, and that's good. However, what it comes down to is that there is an objective standard that's outside of you and I, mm. and that is the context of those words that were written down then. And so it's not a matter of me and my, my scriptures being the final interpreter, but that I have to maybe think that maybe other people have thought about this as well in the life of the church over the last 2,000 years, and actually beyond into the rabbis and uh, into the Old Testament as well, that we have pretty clear uh, lines of truth that lead us uh, into different um, traditions and different interpretations of scripture that can be charted out, which would, I guess would take forever to chart out all of history. But still, <laughs> people who study these things at a high level will know that uh, people who are saying solo scriptura, you know, it's me, well, they wouldn't say that, but who practice solo scriptura, that's me and my Bible according to my experience, that they are actually more part of their culture of Western democratized Americans than they are biblically accurate mm -hmm. so it's i'm not saying that they're just unenlightened but it's more like 
everybody does this when you're part of your own culture. It's hard to see past your own culture. And one of the things the Bible does is it actually challenges us to think past what we would normally think about our lives. In fact, I can tell you, every time I study the Bible, it disagrees with me. <laughs> Literally, every time I, I read a passage, what I thought it was going to say, it doesn't actually say. Mm. You have people quote the Bible to you or read the Bible or talk about general Bible knowledge things. And not only are there details that are wrong, those are details that change the interpretation of the text. Mm. And the text doesn't say it. Yeah. Uh, learning how to read the text for what it says is a very difficult thing. And I think is probably the most difficult discipline that we can have today because, again, we are Western, democratized, individualistic, and we think that what we think is the most important thing in the world. And we can't, it's, it's hard to submit ourselves to something that was written long ago. And, but the thing that breaks through that is to say that this came from God. This is a message from God hmm. through context and writers who had certain situations, real situations, and grammatical and historical things that we need to deal with. We need to be able to rightly handle the Word of God according to its context and its how it presents itself and what it says. But it's a hard thing to do mostly because we stand in the way of ourselves. So that's the main thing I would encourage people with. Is you, you gotta you got to read Scripture in its context. You have to learn how to uh, look at what the words say in that context. Because there's sometimes like one word will mean something different in one book from another too. Same word may mean a different thing in a different context. Uh, they may have some relationship. But like uh, I constantly find that what I thought the Bible was going to say about something, it actually doesn't mean, you know, or I thought it wrong. And my, precon my preconceptions have to change every single Sunday. On two sermons and two exhortations from two different passages, and then every Wednesday from a Bible study on, on the on the Gospel of Luke. So five different passages every week. I find out how little I know about. So it's a good feeling though too, because I, at least I'm getting God's word, but I'm also finding out how what I thought I was going to learn is not actually the case. My gosh, what what an edifying answer! What edifying knowledge! Wonderful. That's awesome. Solo Scriptura. So we got Solo Scriptura, Solo Ecclesia, Solo Scriptura, and then maybe So Long Scriptura. <laughs> would that be So Long Scriptura? Would that be modernism? Yeah. Would that be rejection of, it, of inspiration. It just went totally left. Which which comes from a it comes from a strong presupposition. Yeah. Which is, which is a fa I'm saying a fa fallacious presupposition that there is no supernatural. Exactly. Um, which is another debate. Which is the debate for the the nature of the existence of God uh, yeah. related very closely related debate. But uh, so long scriptura would be something along the lines of saying, it's just a book and maybe it has some religious value to it. And of all the religions that have ever been, maybe Christianity is the best of those religions. Yeah. However, it's still just a book written by men with the best accumulated knowledge of religion that you could possibly have. Jesus is a good teacher, like Buddha. He's just a good rabbi, right? But there, but he's he's not really he's not really God, which is basically what the what the Islam what Islam is. So I would answer that by simply saying, first off, you've got to recognize that historically, there's a group of people um, in the 20th century called the Evangelical Awakening in the UK. Oh, and I think I've talked about them before on here, but. 
they included like R.C. Lucas, Leon Morris, uh, John Stott, uh, J.I. Packer, and others who, uh, with a battering ram of good scholarship, broke down the walls of uh, liberal theology and basically pointed out that it's either one or the other. Either this book, uh, everything you're saying about it with your basically conspiracy theories of how these people came up with all these, you know, these books of the Bible are true, or the only other answer is it has to be miracle. It has to be supernatural because you have things predicted before they come to pass. You have uh, a book that is so united in its thematic structure, the symbolism, the prophecies and fulfillment uh, in the way that it presents itself, in its doctrine and in everything that it does uh, with uh, the sacrificial system being fulfilled in Christ. Everything about the Bible shows itself to be truly a gift from God and having one ultimate author inspiring and superintending the whole thing. And so what the evangelical awakening did was it was actually a, it was a scholarly awakening where um, heavy-hitting scholars were showing that, no, if you actually look at the historical situations, not only did these account for what was happening in history at the time, according to the best archaeology we can do, the best study in, in, in all fields of uh, linguistics and everything that we can do, but also when you look at the claims of the Bible, the only account for these things having come about is that not only is the Bible true, but Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Because, for example, um, how does it make any sense that the people in Jerusalem never denied that Jesus of Nazareth raised from the dead? Mm. How does it make any sense that there's this obvious cover-up that happened from the high priests and the Roman soldiers that everybody knew about and nobody denied that the soldiers saw angels and they saw the risen Jesus and they fainted? And that this was covered up and known by the people in Jerusalem. How does it make sense that the apostles, then why would they go and teach a lie and go on and continue preaching the word of God, go to every nation, and every one of them preach to the point of martyrdom? Every single one, well, except for John, because they may have tried. Yeah, it. They, they may have tried, but yeah. it, it didn't seem to work. Mm-hmm. However, they preached, even through all kinds of suffering and persecution, and the only thing that makes sense of the rise of Christianity is the truth of the facts that they happened. Historically. And historians have shown this. Uh, theologians have pointed this out. And the, the great proof of Christianity is the scripture itself. God's word is the final standard and the final authority. And actually the best place to go back to as scholars is to look at scripture as the uh, its own, not only self-interpreter, but its own defense. But anyway, so, sola scriptura, sola ecclesia, solo scriptura, and so long scriptura. scriptura. Man. I'll have to remember that. Yeah, that's a good outline. Well, we'll have it. We'll have it recorded on this episode All on right. the podcast. But, so for for wow. po- posterity, because I'll probably forget. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and it, it'll be probably on minute forty six or minute forty three or so. But um, wow, this discussion was awesome. Well, let's go ahead now and get into a little Q&A. And by the way, uh, since we are uh, also recording from Anchor FM, um, it gives us only an hour and we got 47 minutes and 29 seconds now 
So let's go ahead and get into a couple of uh, questions. And so from Brandon Kemp, he says, What argument would you give for sinful actions in the Bible? Some say that including certain points in the Bible are like an endorsement for sin. Well, the Bible is the ultimate standard of truth. So whatever it affirms as good is good. Whatever it affirms as right is right. Whatever it affirms as wrong is wrong because it is the source of truth. Uh, however, you have things like, okay, here's an example. Having multiple wives might be an example, but we know that does not mean God approved of it. How should we differentiate this to others who are confused? Ah, they have to read the Bible. Exactly. Because you find yeah. it out from context. Yes, that's what I was going to bring up. Because the Bible doesn't affirm yeah. every. Because the devil talks in the Bible. It doesn't affirm that the devil's saying something that is right and true, but it records it accurately. And the Bible is saying that what is truth for us to take in and believe for the sake of the good of our souls, like the covenant of grace, are those things that God says and affirms. So, yeah, it's a great question because there's definitely a differentiation. But the only answer is, and this is not probably one people want to hear, is you got to actually get your Bible, open it up, read it chapter by chapter, and study it to see that these things are so. Uh, because there's no, there's no substitute for that. I can't see any substitute for and, that. And it's, like a, and it's like a famous YouTuber once says that what's the rule for every video and for reading the Bible and reading the Scripture? Three rules. Context, context, context. If you want to understand something, you have to know what the context says by what it means. Um, for well, one of one of the other examples was is let's even go to the fall of man. What happened right after Adam and Eve fell? Yeah, they disobeyed. Yes, they brought the curse of the original sin into the world and all that. But you see God clothing them in. Um, by sacrificing two animals and clothing them. And R.C. Sproul pointed out that was a picture of God's grace clothing him in his love. And so that's why, you know, when you deal with, um, when you deal with the patriarchs, when you deal with the apostles, when you deal with the prophets and all that, you have to deal with the full context of what everything, uh, what they've been going through. And also, you know, I've actually been watching um, also Dr. James White on, uh, you know, the, the, the church fathers, and he always points something out that I think is really important, and I think this needs to be said over and over again. You need to allow the church fathers to be the church fathers, and you need to allow the, um, the, the original intention of the author to be the original intention of the author. You can't put a modern perspective in God's word. You can't add or subtract to it because if anybody else preaches another gospel, let it be accursed. Right, that's a good point to make, for sure. Uh, well, for example, in the gospels, uh, at Bible study, we just had a man. We had a great time with this, oh, but it was it was so frustrating uh, because it was in Luke chapter sixteen, and it's the parable of the unrighteous steward, where our Lord uses this parable of this guy who. Uh, accidentally serves his master well, uh, yeah. but he intended basically to like commit a uh, monetary malfeasance, basically misusing funds to make friends for himself so that once he lost his job, he would have lots of friends. So he's going to like make their accounts, you know, reflect 
lower balances so that they would basically get a discount. And what happens is accidentally he makes his master like really popular in town and the master's like, this is great. You've done a great job as my, as my manager. And so the guy thought he was going to get fired, but it turns out he gets this, you know, approval from his master. And so our Lord says, we need to be, if, if the sons of darkness know to be shrewd with the with unrighteous money, how much more should we be shrewd to like to be mindful of our master and what yeah. he's doing? And so like it was a difficult one because this parable uses an example where the guy is a sinner and he's like a conniving uh, <laughs> criminal yeah. who's willing to ruin his master's you know books in order to put himself forward, and then the Lord uses it as a parable. However, he's not affirming that we would you know, misuse funds. No. However, he is using the example of that sort of thing. So the context is key. So like I was, for example, another example of this, I was a, um, I was a chaplain. Well, a chaplain's assistant for the County of San Diego. There's one chaplain for the County jails. It's a chaplain assistant for the County of San Diego, uh, at George Bailey detention facility for five and a half years. Mm. And, uh, and a great time doing the ministry there, uh, and everything, and I got lots of examples from you know, different guys, and I never used their names or anything like that. But just you know, a lot of the stories of their lives and conversion have stuck with me, and examples of like how life really works and how people really think, and you know, they're very honest. The the, the Christians, men who become believers in in uh, jail. Uh, but uh, as I think through some of these examples, and sometimes use these examples of their lives, uh, I'm not condoning them. And the same thing is true in scripture. It's like you may have like a dynamic that seems like it is condoning the behavior, but it's not. Or another example is like with the multiple wives thing, you know, there's polygamy in the Old Testament. There's also many books that completely denounce polygamy. Uh, the point of the historical books is often to just record the history. And then how do you interpret it? You go back to Deuteronomy. That's the law code. A lot of times you don't get even an explanation. Like, for example, is Solomon having 700 wives and 300 concubines a good or a bad thing? Because the text in 1 Kings chapter 11 doesn't actually tell us. However, if you look at the book of Deuteronomy, it says very clearly that the law regarding kings, the law regulating kings, is they are not to multiply gold to themselves. They're not supposed to multiply horses or swords and shields and chariots or wives to themselves. And if you look then back at 1 Kings, you'll see that those are the things that Solomon did. So in the context of the whole canon, things like that can make sense. And it just takes, you got to read the Bible. <laughs> you got to read the whole Bible. Otherwise, things won't make sense. And read it, read it in its context. Right. Wow. Well, I think, I think we're running a little bit out of time so uh and we don't mean to cut off the q a off so sure but man it was just it was so awesome and edifying join uh, us next time on theosity fridays do, i don't even know if we have a theme so do 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 but but really quickly um you wanted to promote a book really quickly so if you can do that maybe like for a little talking about a what was it the the book by J.I. Packer, or what was it? I do. I, I recommend people read their Bibles, but also if you want a <laughs> if you want a book that will give you a, a beginning uh, 
intro, well, just an introduction to the theological terms and was my first systematic theology introduction, which is not really exactly a systematic theology, but I thought it was so helpful, is this book called Concise Theology by uh, James Packer, J.I. Packer. His initials are J.I. Packer. Concise Theology, a Guide to Historic Christian Beliefs. This was my start, uh, the first book I read on theology back when I was about 15 years old, somewhere there about. Wow. And I felt like a real hot shot back then because I knew some terms now. <laughs> I knew some theolo theological loci and uh, had to get a swift kick in the butt from some people who actually knew some things over the course of years and they were patient with me. But however, I would still recommend this. Uh, it's a great introduction. He's, he writes so well. Uh, it's so biblical. It's full of scripture. And it just gives you the definitions of so many helpful terms from a master theologian. And actually, this, this individual, J.I. Packer, was part of that evangelical awakening that I spoke about earlier and has been so yes. influential on me. Yes. So uh, it's a great introduction to that whole movement. All right. Well, awesome, awesome discussion. Awesome introduction. Awesome outro. Great questions. I think um, I think we're both truly satisfied with this episode, and um, we will see you guys next time. Um, and we'll reveal what the subject is going to be, but it'll be still in the topic of scripture of uh, yeah, on uh, bibliology. And so, um, but as for now, um, we are going to sign out. But um, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Theo City Fridays, and um, we hope to see you soon. God bless, and you all have a great one by God's sovereign grace. Take care, and bye-bye.